I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Allie Rosen, the founder and host of Potluck with Allie, a TV show on NYC Life and a website about food, drink, and travel. She is also the author of two cookbooks and has been nominated for both a James Beard Award and two Emmys. Allie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You majored in international studies in college, is that right? And also worked in journalism. So how did you end up in the food industry? Yeah, I'm a reformed news junkie, I guess. No, I I really, I love storytelling always. So I, and I loved news and I loved foreign policy. I love, you know, I went to college abroad and I just, I thought that would be my area of expertise. And I, I worked in news for a little while and I realized like I did not, it wasn't for me. So while I am still a major news junkie and love listening to podcasts on all things foreign policy and news related, I had always loved food. And so I had learned a lot about storytelling and I moved into the food space um, and that was a much better fit for me. So, so I sort of had that journalism background, which I think in food, we are seeing more and more that having journalists who focus on food is actually quite useful to our society as we all eat. And the cost of food is a huge issue for people and sort of what to make and how to eat is a major issue sort of across all topics. So, you know, I find that there's a lot of journalism in food, but there's also a lot of happiness in food. So it's a better fit for me. Did studying international relations like shape your understanding or experience of the food industry? Or perhaps like another way to phrase this question is like, is there something that each field could potentially learn from the other one? I think just an understanding of how globalized our world is. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in South Carolina. I never traveled as a kid. You know, I had a very limited view of sort of what the world could be until I went, I went to boarding school and then I went to college abroad and, you know, meeting people from different cultures, from different places. I, I think food is kind of the great connector between cultures. You know, I think that people who say like, well, I'm not interested in politics and I'm not interested in world affairs and this isn't me. Like, they are interested probably in a dish from a country that is different to their own. Like I think it's the best way to kind of bring people together. Food has the ability to allow us to tell stories about ourselves that humanizes us. And I think that when we think about foreign policy and international relations and sort of how the world comes together, food is the one thing that can humanize us. And it's, it's so important because as we talk about these larger issues, it's important to remember that there's people on every side of it. I mean, so you and I met in India and right now the heat in India, what that's doing to agriculture. I mean, that the, the way to humanize that is to think about the people that you know at your local Indian restaurant and how their families are being affected and, you know, how the food that you love is being affected because that crop can't grow. So I think that food is really the one thing that everybody can agree on on some level. So it's, it's the greatest connector we have. So you mentioned the heat wave in India, and it seems like climate change is really having a, a major impact on, on food prices right now. But I could imagine it also has an impact on availability and styles of cooking. How do you see climate change as impacting the culinary arts broadly? Well, I'm hoping that the impact to food is one of the few things that actually gets people to take it seriously. You know, I think that there's 
a lot that is disconnected from people when you say, oh my God, there's a heat wave in India. Well, I don't live in India. I don't live near India. So how does that affect me? When food prices go up, when your favorite like bucatini, which is sort of a niche pasta that a lot of people love for a long time, like wasn't available in the US because of all sorts of diplomatic reasons. You know, I, I think until things start to hit people personally, it's hard to get people to care about things. And I mean, that's just a fact of life. So food prices, food availability is a huge part of global warming. And we have gotten so spoiled. I mean, when I think about the access to food that we have that other generations have never had, you know, that you can get blueberries from Peru in February, that you can get any ingredient. If you want to get Korean gochujang or you want to get Japanese soy sauce, you know, all of those things are available to you. So the more that we become reliant on those types of food, the more that climate change all over the world is going to affect us individually. So I think it's not helpful because it's horrible, but I think that sort of people's love of food is going to be one of the few things that helps people grasp how serious climate change is and how important it is for us to work on a global scale rather than just try to solve things in our own backyard because it's not going to do it. It also seems like there's food trends that are being driven by consumer awareness of climate change. So alternative milks, for example, to some extent, I think are probably driven by like health concerns and and just dietary preference, but also um, out of concern for for climate related issues. Well, I mean, oat milk is now rapidly gaining on almond milk because people have started to read about the production of almonds and the amount of water that that consumes. You know, I think that a knowledgeable public is very helpful, but often marketing and sort of the memification of information gives us like small snippets of information. I mean, the impossible burger and sort of alternative meats is a great example of that. Like if you're a vegetarian, that's a great option, but it's not necessarily better for the environment because the amount of energy needed to produce one of those alternative meat products, you know, it's not exactly better from an ecological perspective than meat people sort of get behind their singular issues when we actually have much wider problems to deal with. I think that people who are vegetarian or vegan, I find that commendable, but I don't think that any individual action is going to solve the crisis around food that we are having and that we are facing and that is rapidly getting worse and more, you know, it's not getting better. It's just getting worse. So I think that when we think about sort of policy and how that affects food, be it climate change or just food availability or food prices, that really has to come on a policy level, both domestically and internationally, because a percentage of Americans becoming vegetarian is not going to solve it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's nice to think that it could, but it, it's not going to come anywhere close to it, unfortunately. So you're not going to be gluing your hands to a Manhattan Starbucks anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, I thought like of all the things in the world, you know, it's funny because again, like I think that a lot of people don't understand that rising costs really have nothing to do with restaurants. I mean, Starbucks is charging more for alternative milks because alternative milks cost them more because we subsidize dairy. And the way that our domestic policy has impacted sort of the cost of food and the way that climate change is affecting food. So, no, I am not going to get 
really passionate about uh, Starbucks charging an extra 50 cents for oat milk. They are charging an extra 50 cents because it costs them an extra 50 cents. So the issue is, why are we subsidizing soy and corn rather than alternatives that are better? I mean, that, you know, that's a domestic policy issue. But yes, I think that the, the misunderstanding around what can solve things is, is just, it, it's disappointing in a lot of ways because we're sort of all, it's like the focus on straws instead of on plastic as a whole. You know, it, it, it feels that way to me in food, like go vegetarian rather than the issues that we have with subsidies, with the amount of meat that people eat, with the way things are packaged, with our expectations around what we're allowed to eat at every time of year. Those are issues that need to be addressed, not necessarily like individual action. So if you're not going to be out there protesting about the cheap prices on soy or the cheap prices on dairy, what do you think is the most important thing policy-wise we could do to have a better food landscape? I think there's a few things. I mean, there are things that individuals can do. I mean, first of all, vote and have an actual read on what food policies your local representatives represent, because I think that we spend a lot of time talking about issues that do not affect us that much and consuming news. I mean, the amount that I have heard about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard when like, yeah, India is on fire. Like, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's like, okay, like that's one way to look at the world. And, you know, we all need to escape now and then. I mean, I write cookbooks, so certainly I understand that. But I mean, I think that the individual actions that people can take is, first of all, to to make climate change your number one issue when you're voting. I mean, I think that that it, at the end of the day, you know, the economy, where it is today, you know, how you feel about social issues. I mean, none of this matters if our if we cannot grow food you know, and we can no longer have the system supporting us that allow us to eat. So to me, as a person who cares about food policy, I would say that voting in every election and voting in your local elections as well matters. The other thing that you can do is vote with your wallet. You know, look up the brands that you buy. I think we all get into sort of these cycles of like, oh, I like this brand of eggs. I like this brand of milk. And without really sort of recognizing that every time you continue to buy something, you are telling the market, this is a thing that we want. You know, the more people buy products, that are environmentally sound, the more people buy the local produce from their grocery store rather than the produce that is flown in from halfway across the world, the more they will stock that. So that's one of those things where like, yes, it is a small thing, but it's a large thing. Listen, everyone can do small things. I mean, I'm a person who composts. So like, I, you know, of course I believe very strongly in like supporting our agricultural food system. I buy most of my food at my local farmer's market. Like I'm one of those kind of people, but I don't think that that is, A, realistic for everyone. I mean, I think food costs are staggering. But I think a lot of people also don't know that, for example, like you can use food stamps at farmer's markets in most parts of the country. You know, like you can cook a cabbage instead of buying mac and cheese, and that will also be cheaper for you. Like, I think there's an impression around food costs and healthy eating is what we can do individually. And I think those things do matter. But I mean, above all else, vote and, and make it your number one issue. You know, I, I, I hate to say that in a time where domestic policy is scary, women's rights are frightening, you know, there's social issues. I mean, you know, I think for people who feel strongly about social issues, that feels 
wrong almost to say, you know, like we want to believe that like these social issues are the most important issues that we face, but women having the right to choose if they don't have food to eat, like, (laughs) you know, like you have to sort of focus where you can and not to say that you shouldn't focus on other things, but I don't know. I, I, I'm sort of, I am continually shocked at how climate change is not people's number one issue. So you mentioned that you got your start in food while, while living in Mumbai, which is such an interesting place, I imagine, to be writing about food because there's such a rich cultural history of food and regional cuisines and so forth. But it's also a place where there's been a lot of food insecurity and malnutrition and supply chain issues and things like that. So, you know, first would love to just hear about like what inspired you to first start writing about food. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about bagels and locks and just how you sort of think about writing about food or covering food in a place like Mumbai versus, you know, New York City. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I I was in India to work on a documentary about domestic violence prevention in slums, which is, you know, a very uh, lighthearted topic. And um, so to kind of keep myself sane, I started writing a blog. But yeah, I was called Bagels and Locks because lock is like a, a number unit in India. So it was kind of a joke about being an American in India. And, you know, a, a lot of what I wrote about was food. And, you know, it's interesting. First of all, I think the thing that I have learned the most in my time since then is that we need to get better at letting other people tell their own stories. That perhaps if you want to read about India, a white Jewish girl from South Carolina is probably not the best person to teach you about Indian food. But, you know, which is something I think that media has really started, fortunately, to realize. But, you know, for me, I, I think that, again, it comes back to that exposure to other people's lives and the ways that the rest of the world lives. I mean, I think what's so fascinating about Indian food is we talk a lot about food policy and its relation to meat and its relation to poverty. India is a country where a large percentage of people are vegetarian. And we sort of worry about vegetarian lifestyles and like whether that, you know, people can get enough iron. I mean, like there's a billion people in India and a huge percentage of them are vegetarian. So there's a lot to be gleaned from sort of how people eat in other parts of the world to stay healthy and be vegetarian. And again, I say this as someone who's not vegetarian, but I certainly think that that does have, you know, an impact on climate change and on our food policy. And I think the second thing is, you know, as you were saying, like India is a country that has an incredible food history, but also has immense poverty. And so a lot of what people are facing in India is trying to sort of cook on a scale where they are purchasing ingredients that are not as expensive and living paycheck to paycheck and meal. And, you know, one of the things with the organization that I worked with, the domestic violence organization, is that they would give women food. I mean, they would give them rice or they would give them lentils to make dal. And because, you know, that was kind of the way out of poverty, the way to give people autonomy. You know, I think when we've seen with policy that empowers women sort of in lower income areas, that often food can be the conduit for people to get out of difficult situations. Having enough food can be a conduit towards getting an education and moving forward with people's lives. So, I mean, it was fascinating to me to sort of be in that environment, working in a slum with people who, you know, obviously had significantly less resources than the average person, but were still cooking, enjoying their food, enthusiastic about teaching people about food, sharing their food. So 
it was really fascinating to me to kind of want to view those stories and tell stories about food because when you're telling a story about food, you're telling a story about humanity and sort of the way that people live in the world. And often that can be how policy affects them. So for me, cooking with women who are dealing with domestic violence and living in one of the most difficult circumstances that a person can live in, which is, you know, like an urban slum setting, to find the amount of joy and love and culture that you can see about someone sort of through their food, I think is just a really fascinating lens. And so it made, you know, I've always been someone who loved food and, and recipes, but I mean, that really helped solidify for me the, the desire to sort of tell stories through food because it's, you know, listen, sometimes a meal is just a meal and you need to get dinner on the table and that is great. But food can also be the easiest way to learn about someone and to see them, you know, in all of their humanity. So I don't know that for me, India was very special for that because it was such a different environment to where I'd grown up. And it was amazing to sort of see how easy it was to connect with people over a love of food, you know, no matter your cultural differences, your language barriers, your difference in socioeconomic status. I mean, everybody loves food and everybody loves good food, you know, so it's, it's the great connector. Speaking of using food to kind of get to the, the root of who you are as a person, I know you are from Charleston. I am from Rock Hill, South Carolina and upstate. Yeah. What is your sort of go-to home cooking meal that it's like, this, this is my personal, like, this says a lot about me. It's such a hard question because I, I mean, I make a lot of biscuits, so I guess that's, and I, I think biscuits say a lot about me because they're Southern, they're delicious, but they are also really, I make them really fast and simple. Like, I don't think that they should be complicated. And I think people assume that they're complicated. So yeah, I don't know. Like if I was a food, I guess I'd be a biscuit. I mean, a Southern biscuit, not the British, like sad, you know, need to dunk it in a milk kind of biscuit. Fluffy biscuits are always, always good. I was just thinking about um, one of my weird beliefs that I think everyone gets like a couple in their, their life is that every family has a specific Thanksgiving food that is unique oh to their God, family yeah. that like no one else has or it's cooked in some weird way. And so yes. my family has the fried cornbread, but it's not a hush puppy, mm. which is round. It's flat. Yeah. Like a, a square fried. Yeah, bread. yeah. And so I, I was just thinking about how biscuits are also one of those things that are very traditionally Southern, but they don't, they always seem to be more difficult and highfalutin than they actually end up being. Yeah. People think they're really hard. I mean, I make biscuits with two, I mean, I make biscuits with self-rising flour and, um, and heavy whipping cream and that's it. So like, I've never understood why people think it's difficult. The fried cornbread sounds really good. My weird Thanksgiving thing is my aunt makes a pea salad that I've never seen anywhere else. That does not sound appetizing. I'm sure it is lovely, but a piece. No, I, I I plead the fifth on my feelings about the piece <laughs> for the sake of my family. Sounds like you need to have sort of a, a reinvention cookbook where it's just yeah. people's terrible. Well, my aunt is from Florence, South Carolina, so you know we we could get we could really delve into the you know culinary intricacies of various parts of South Carolina. But, Let's talk you know. specifically about some she crab soup. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Sounds like I need I mean, to get myself invited to a Thanksgiving in South Carolina. <laughs> definitely. Or not if you don't like pea salad. But the fried cornbread I'd go for first. Allie, earlier you, you sort of mentioned, you know, that fortunately the media is kind of waking up to the fact that the people who should be 
writing about certain types of food or people who have lived experience of the, of those cultures and foods and things like that. And, you know, there obviously have been some high profile controversies around, you know, appropriation and food. And, and I'm curious, like where you would draw the line between kind of the, the mixing and borrowing of food cultures, which has obviously happened for, for many, many generations all over the world, and where it sort of crosses into cultural appropriation and, and how you sort of think about that in the writing of your own cookbooks. I think about it a lot because I am a person who grew up in the South, where most of the food that I grew up with is actually fundamentally West African food. I lived in India. I've spent a lot of time being influenced by Indian food, and I spend a lot of time in Italy, and I am in no way Italian. I mean, I grew up sort of with no, I mean, I'm, I'm Jewish, but my grandmother on that side of my family was not alive. Like I never really learned that type of food. So, you know, the idea that like you have to cook the food of only your cultural background is like personally for me sort of very sad because like I didn't grow up with any particular kind of food that belonged to my heritage, you know, like, I mean, we made like latkes on, you know, Hanukkah and that was kind of it. So I think the idea that people are only allowed to cook the food that is of their culture is sort of the antithesis of what's great about food, you know, that it's it's shareable, it's learnable, that it brings you into other people's perspectives. I mean, I, I think that no one owns a recipe. And I mean, and actually copyright law has, you know, you can own sort of the text at the beginning of a recipe, but you can't copyright a recipe. And, and, I, and I think that's correct. I think the thing that's important is attribution. You know, I think that where there's been controversy is like when Alison Roman says she's making a stew and it's really a curry and you're not saying like, oh, this is based on a curry and curries have a long, rich history across these cultures. I mean, I, I don't think it's that you can't cook food. I think it's just that you have to say like, my books are all sort of about easy cooking. I have one book about potlucks and one book about freezer food. So, I mean, the recipes span many cultures, but I mean, I'm going to have a recipe for enchiladas. Like I'm going to have to put a line in there about like, there are many ways that traditional Mexican families and other South American families make enchiladas. Like this is not a traditional version. I am inspired by those versions. Here's mine. You know, like that's all you have to say. But I think that there is, there has been so much erasure, especially in the U.S. where sort of we don't have an indigenous, well, we do have an indigenous cuisine, but not, <laughs> that's a whole other topic. But, you know, American food has sort of been a mashup of so many different kinds of foods. Even like when we think of Italian food in America, I mean, Italian American food is its own type of food. You know, like you don't find spaghetti and meatballs in Italy. Like so much of our culture is about food that we've sort of mashed up and made our own. But I, I and again, like I, I think there's been a little bit of hand wringing around, like you have to acknowledge the whole history of things. And it's like, well, you know what? Like if I'm, looking for a quick recipe to make for dinner on a Tuesday. Like I don't need to get the entire history of spaghetti and meatballs. Like that's not, you know, something that I'm interested in. But I, I do think that we've gotten to a place where we acknowledge where things come from and also where, I mean, there are stories that I will not write. You know, I, a few years ago, there was a woman in Charleston, the chef Martha Lou Gadsden, who cooked fried chicken. And I mean, she was just one of the most legendary people in Charleston. She was cooking into her 90s. She had this restaurant where, I mean, like they served you on styrofoam and like plastic chairs and it was just amazing. And when she passed away, 
you know, a publication that I write for reached out to me and said, oh, we saw that you posted something about the passing of Martha Lou. Would you like to write an article for us? Five years ago, I would have said, oh, yeah, I love her, you know, and I, I respect her. And, oh, you know, I, I, I love her. I am the person to write this. You know, today, you know, I said, here are, here are the names of three Black writers from Charleston that you should reach out to. And they are really the people who should write about this. It doesn't mean that I can't ever write about fried chicken. It doesn't mean that I can't ever write an article about Black women who've cooked fried chicken in Charleston. It just means that, like, there are moments where it's appropriate to have somebody who understands that culture more. And it doesn't mean there's a lot of controversy about like white men cooking Mexican food. I mean, Rick Bayless, who's sort of the most famous like white chef in America who cooks Mexican food, he has never said that he's Mexican. He doesn't try to pretend like he is Mexican or that he invented Mexican cuisine. He has been an ambassador of Mexican cuisine, you know? So I, I think that we have to find the middle ground because we can't just say like, you're not allowed to cook other people's food, but you, you are allowed to say like, Hey, if you go to Mexico for a week, please don't open a Mexican restaurant. Like that's not appropriate. So yeah, it's, it's compl- I mean, it's a very complicated topic, but one that I'm very glad that we're talking about more. We sort of talked about how food runs the gamut between like hyper local. I need to get something on my plate tonight, all the way up to climate change is baking everything and ruining the global <laughs> ecosystem. <laughs> One of the ways I want to move up that chain from like, Mm. we can all sit around and either enjoy making food from cultures that aren't our own or eating food from cultures that aren't our own is how do you think food can play a role in international relations? How can gastro diplomacy maybe bring people together in ways that we're not imagining right now? Food is a huge conduit for connection. First of all, I think Television and media has had a huge impact on how we view other foods. You know, I I certainly have friends that I grew up with, especially friends whose sort of parents were immigrants and the stigmas that they carried around, you know, how their food smelled when their parents packed them lunch is so different than how kids are growing up today in a world with, you know, sort of from Anthony Bourdain onwards. I think that there is just so much more interest in food, which therefore gives people more interest in culture, which broadens our worldview. But I also think when you have political leaders sitting down over meals and talking sort of through food, I think that that always helps sort of human. I mean, I I hate to keep saying that word, but I mean, food really humanizes people. When you see like so many of the people, our elected officials who've gone to Ukraine and a lot of what they've done is, you know, sit down for meals with people. You've seen it in New York where people are supporting Ukrainian restaurants and going and sort of having, you know, like there's, there is something very different about saying like, wow, there's a war on the other side of the world versus going to Veselka, you know, in New York's East Village and eating a pierogi and sort of imagining what life is like for people who can't get the food that they are used to getting. I I think that when I was growing up, among the only people that I had interaction with who were immigrants were people who owned restaurants, you know, like the only Chinese people I ever met growing up in a very black and white world was the Chinese family that owned the one Chinese restaurant that existed in Charleston. Now Charleston has like incredible food from all over. But I think that that has really 
helps shift the narrative for a lot of people. So when we talk about the way that we import and export food, that when we talk about sort of how much immigration we're going to allow into the country, so much of that can be made real through food. So, and I think that we all sort of complain about like delivery apps and all these things, but it's like, you know, the fact that you can like get on your phone and order Persian food for dinner tonight might make you think differently about like our enemies in Iran. Like it might make you be like, oh, there are just people who live there and they're eating this delicious food. And man, I wish I could go there. You know, <laughs> I mean, one of the things about normalizing relations with Cuba was that like Americans just wanted to be tourists there, you know, like the food is great and there's so much to do there. I mean, that can really push boundaries, you know, of like, hey, Americans want to be tourists in these places. We want to have normal relations with different places. I mean, that, I don't know. I mean, that's a lot of different answers, but it's just, it's because there are just so many ways that food can connect people, you know, beyond just like, we're having a state dinner for a Chinese leader and we're going to have a Chinese American chef cook the dinner. Like, I mean, okay, that's, certainly one way to do it. But there's so many smaller ways that sort of change people's minds and perceptions. And I think media has a lot to do with that. It is really interesting just in the course of this conversation to realize all of the intersections of food policy with immigration policy, agriculture policy, climate change, healthcare, especially if you think about healthy eating and obesity and things like that. And then things like food, you know, insecurity and conflict and national security. So it is you know, it's sort of like an interesting cross-section across a ton of different, both like domestic and international policy spaces. Yeah, it's one of the few areas where we sort of take for granted that like food affects almost everything that we do. And we are so disconnected from our supply chain in regards to food. Like people walk into a grocery store, everything they could ever want is just there. and cheaper than it's ever been in history, which in many ways is good because less people are starving today than at any other point. People can afford to eat more than at any other point. But on the other hand, that cheapness, that disconnection really has created this gap between like, you know, if you can walk into Trader Joe's and buy like chana masala for four dollars frozen and then make that like, okay, that does connect you to Indian food and makes you sort of see it in another light. That's great. But it also, where were those chickpeas grown? How was that packaged? What is the packaging on that? How does that packaging, if you stick it in a microwave, like what are the chemicals that are then leaching into your body? And how does that affect our health? Like how does the fact that we subsidize corn mean that we have corn syrup and everything? How is it that, you know, we export so much corn and soybean products to China and Japan? Like, how does that affect our relations with those countries versus other things that we could be growing and subsidizing and perhaps contributing to the world in a more positive way? I mean, it's, it touches every area because it's, listen, it's the one thing that we all do three times a day, right? I mean, hopefully, or I mean, if you're me, like sitting here with like snacks all around you, you know, we're all constantly eating and we're sort of just very used to having that be an easy part of our day when just from getting, like, if you get a piece of fish on your plate in a restaurant, the number of people that touch that piece of fish, it's really unbelievable, you know, and the economic scale of that and how many people have to work to get that and where those people are working, you know, was it domestically produced or was it a farmed piece of fish in Ecuador that they had to 
bulldoze a rainforest for, to have those tanks. I mean, we, we sort of are just so disconnected from where our food comes from. We take those supply chains for granted until things like the baby formula shortage happens. And then all of a sudden, I think there's a real question about like, oh my gosh, like food insecurity issues can also affect people in the United States who are otherwise affluent. You know, like it's these tricky issues like ultimately have very, very long tentacles. The baby formula shortage is a fascinating example of like, I think if you interviewed 100 people on the street and said, name five ingredients in baby formula, like I, I don't think that they could, you know, like, and that's the thing that the vast majority of Americans feed to small children for the first year of their life, you know, and, and we have no concept of what's in that, where it comes from, what the standards are. You know, the issue is not that we can't make more formula, it's that the FDA has to approve the formula, you know, we have these roadblocks and that we've sort of allowed that entire industry to become monopolized by a couple of companies, when it hits up against a stop, that creates a huge issue. I mean, cookbooks has been a hilarious example of globalization. I mean, every cookbook release that I know, including mine last summer, has been delayed because of ship, you know, container ships. There aren't enough employees to sort of unload the container ships. Things are happening in China. You know, every book you've ever read has been printed in China. That could, I mean, it just it doesn't occur to people supply chain. And so in some ways, it's been good to have these supply chain issues because it wakes people up to the reality of like, oh, perhaps we should be producing more things locally. Perhaps we should also maintain positive relations with the countries around us because we really rely on them for a lot of what we consume. So yeah, I mean, obviously, baby formula shortage is not a great way to sort of have people realize these things. But, you know, it, it, it certainly is important for people to stop and say to themselves, like, wow, if I'm eating a blueberry in February, how did that get to me? Like, what had to happen for me to be eating a blueberry while it is snowing outside? You know, like, a lot of things had to happen to make that happen. One of the problems of focusing on visibility, as, as we've sort of talked about, is that it's kind of terrible all the way down. It's like, oh, yeah. I can choose to focus <laughs> on, I can choose to focus on labor policy, or I can choose to right. focus on climate, or I can choose to focus on animal welfare. It's like all food has some problem baked into it, pun yeah. not intended, about <laughs> uh, all the various different issues that come with it. But that's why we elect government to sort of take on some of those roles for oversight. So what are some things that the government could be doing to make the food marketplace a little better, healthier, kinder? Oh, well, that's, I mean, and that's why I said voting. I mean, unfortunately, from an individual action, I mean, it's, it feels sort of depressing, but it, it really, so much of what could change has to be done at a government level. And people are not paying enough attention where you can have big rallies and sort of get attention. I mean, if, if were I in charge, huh, which... Thankfully, I will never be a politician. But, um, you know, I think the first thing that is important is that we should really, you know, we started subsidizing farmers during the Great Depression, which at the time was very important. We have not really evaluated the way that we do that. And most of the farms that we're subsidizing now, it is not like we're subsidizing like your local small family farm. We are subsidizing huge corporations and we have decided to subsidize like specific ingredients. I mean, corn and soybeans being the biggest one. So the reason why you have so much corn bait, I mean, I, you know, I think Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma sort of got into like, if you test the 
corn percentage of any American's body. It's like really disgusting and sort of frightening how like how much we are now built of corn. But, you know, I, I think that we need a total reevaluation of like, if we are going to subsidize food, we have to recognize that the food that we are subsidizing costs taxpayers money. And then the health implications of that cost us even more money. I mean, the percentage of Americans who have diabetes is a huge drain on our financial system. And I mean, and that sounds like a horrible thing to say, but I mean, if we were subsidizing healthy food, if we were trying to find ways to like make healthy food delicious and cheap, that would save us so much money in the long run in health outcomes. Like the fact that it is so much cheaper for people to go into a store and buy unhealthy processed foods rather than vegetables or even semi-prepared vegetables, right? Like that would make people's lives easier. So, I mean, to me, I think that the system that we have created, I mean, it was fascinating to watch Michelle Obama try. She's really, I mean, she's not a politician, but she's really been the only high profile person to try and tackle this issue of healthy eating in schools, obesity, subsidies. And I mean, and she, I found it admirable, but it was sort of depressing how intractable these industries are, right? Like big agriculture is just such an influential industry. And so much of our government, you know, such a high percentage of our government is run by states that are farming states that have less people, but have much more representation, which is, you know, a fundamental issue with our democracy, that such a small group of people, you know, that like 60% of the Senate is controlled by like 20% of voters or whatever. But I mean, yeah, you know, agriculture, big agriculture has a huge influence over policy. So I would say that the first thing that we have to do is really reevaluate what we subsidize, how we subsidize it. And then also what we tax, you know, a lot of countries, especially in South America, Brazil being a big example, and a lot of Europe have started heavily taxing processed foods, you know, until we make processed foods more expensive than just food, you know, just like a vegetable, people are going to buy processed foods. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, that's, you know, taxing poverty, but no, it's just trying to influence people to still have healthy food. I mean, people buy cheap processed food because it's the cheapest option for their kids. You know, like if it's cheaper to buy your kid a bag of potato chips than it is to buy them an apple, like, well, then you're going to buy the potato chips. So, so I think that taxing unhealthy foods, subsidizing healthier foods, and sort of shifting away from corn and soybeans, which mostly goes to animal feed. I mean, we subsidize corn and then so much of that, I mean, so much corn gets shipped to China to then feed animals that then we ship back to the US. I mean, it's just, it, we just need a total reevaluation. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem likely to happen, but I mean, that would be the best place to start. So if people were interested in learning more either about the story of food and how it connects to people or food policy, other than the omnivores dilemma, which you just name checked, where else should they go? What other good books are out there, resources that they should look for? Yeah, I mean, I would say that really starting with Michael Pollan and any of his works will fundamentally change the way that you think about food. I cannot recommend his writing more highly because I think that he communicates about food policy in a way that is understandable to the average person. And I, I think that a lot of food policy is very 
it's so convoluted that even people who spend their lives studying it, still sometimes there are areas they can't get a grip on, right? So Marion Nestle is another great resource, any of her writing. Mark Bittman, again, is sort of another mainstream author who often writes on food policy. It sounds sort of weird, but, um, you know, Tom Colicchio, who is the host of Top Chef, is very involved in advocating for food policy. And he also sort of has a wide audience and he understands his audience. So he's, you know, if you're looking for sort of like people to follow on that front, he's a very good person to follow because I feel like he's constantly posting and, you know, sort of telling you like where to direct your resources and attention. It's so hard because, I mean, these are, it's, it depends on kind of what your goals are. I mean, again, like there's a lot of people who sort of write, you know, everybody has an agenda. But yeah, I would say start, start with Michael Pollan. Start with him. He's great. I agree with everything he says. Last question. This is kind of a rapid fire one. Who is sort of like your favorite new up and coming chef or alternatively a favorite new restaurant that you'd recommend that people check out? Ooh, my favorite new restaurant is definitely Chisiamo, but because I'm biased towards all things Italian and Hillary Sterling, who used to be the chef at Vicks, now sort of has been given her dream restaurant by Danny Meyer. And I think that's like the best new restaurant in New York. This is kind of a selfish question because as a yes. non worker, maybe I can actually <laughs> take advantage of this, but thank yes. you. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I will say that like looking at, you know, this year's James Beard Award nominees, the James Beard Foundation had a huge overhaul since 2020, kind of reckoning with their very male and very white perspective. And so I think that they have done a really great job of highlighting restaurants and chefs sort of in categories and places that were, you know, that fine dining is not the only way to find innovative cuisine. So I would say that like looking at, you know, wherever you live, if you're not lucky enough to be in New York, like us, I would say that look at sort of what was nominated this year for James Beard Awards in your area, because, you know, I would not have always said that that was a reliable indicator. It's so impossible to say what the best is, but I, I think that they've moved to a system that is much fairer and a better indicator. So with that, let's move on to our final segment where we each talk about something we're following in the news, either cultural or political. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? I have been following for a long time on the subject of food, um, the sort of impacts of, of climate change on the lobster industry in the Northeast. And I think for me, you know, it's, it's something that I have interest in, A, because I love lobster, um, but B, because I've also spent some time with my family in Maine where lobstering is, is really sort of big business. And so I've been following some recent um, sort of attention that's being paid to regulations in certain states in the Northeast, including Massachusetts, that have been designed to protect whale populations that are migrating in different patterns due to, in part due to climate change, that are prohibiting lobstering before a certain date. And it's, you know, it's sort of an interesting and tricky issue to follow because there's people, I think, on all sides of it that have good intentions and are trying to do the right thing and are trying to find ways to protect ecosystems in the face of a growing climate and also protect local industry. So it's just a sort of evolving and, and kind of interesting story, but uh, one that I am keeping my eye on. So to follow up on that climate change related story, I'm also doing a climate change related 
subject this week, I was reading a report from the National American Electric Reliability Corporation, which said that Americans might be facing a series of blackouts this summer due to rising temperatures and droughts. As it turns out, people use AC more when it's hot outside, and the lack of rain doesn't make uh, hydroelectric power easier. But water is also used to cool many different types of power plants. So even if you don't rely on hydroelectric power, water is still necessary to fuel your home. So even with COVID and inflation and the war in Ukraine and the many other issues we're facing right now, it's really important to make sure we don't take our eye off the ball and let climate change fall off the agenda. Allie, what are you following this week? Oh, I have a much happier thing that I'm following, which is um, I'm, you know, we are in cookbook season you know, if you're not a person who follows the release of cookbooks, but uh, there's a new cookbook called Watermelon and Redbirds, which is all about cooking for Juneteenth by Nicole Taylor, who's one of my favorite writers. So as we're sort of talking about people getting to write the things that they are expert in and representing other people in publishing as well, I've been cooking out of that for the last few days. So Watermelon Redbirds by Nicole Taylor. And really Google anything Nicole Taylor has ever written because she's like one of my favorite food writers. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Allie at Allie underscore Rosen. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the Xinjiang Travel Agency. See all the sites we want you to see and none of the sites we don't. Book your next trip with UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, and get a pair of official CCP blinders thrown in for free. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.